Hey everyone, before we start the show, I wanted to let you know we've got another live podcast coming up next Friday, March 8th at 6.30 p.m. at Downtown Cinemas in downtown Las Vegas. We'll be talking about the new Blumhouse horror film, Imaginary. Joining me on the panel, we've got Jimmy Gonzalez, Tom Devlin, and Nick Woods. It's going to be a really fun time. Also, Downtown Cinemas is doing a promotion. You should bring your imaginary friend with you because you'll get a free upgrade on your popcorn to share with your imaginary buddy so come on out it's going to be a great time we're going to get into this movie imaginary talk puzzle pieces have a fun conversation we hope to see you there links and information and how to win tickets in the show notes Welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. And today on the show, we are talking about Alexander Payne's The Holdovers with Paul Giamatti. This is such a fun one, and I am really looking forward to talking about it. Joining me is Noah Gattel, film critic. Uh, it's first time on the show in a while, and happy to have him back. We get into a lot of great puzzle pieces, so that is coming up here in a second. Before we get to it, I want to remind you, as always, to make sure you are subscribed to Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts, wherever you're listening right now. Just hit that follow or subscribe or, I don't know, maybe it's like a little plus button or something, whatever it is, hit it, and you'll find out about all the episodes we have coming up, lots on the way, so make sure you're subscribed. You can also follow us on social media at PiecingPod and join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces where we continue the conversation about all the movies we talk about here on the show. So with that said, we got a lot of pieces to get into, so let's talk about The Holdovers. All right, it's time to get into The Holdovers. I'm looking forward to this one. Joining me, we've got Noah Gattel, film critic, and first time on the show in years. I've been wanting to get you back on. How's it going, Noah? It's going great. I'm I'm happy to be here talking about a better movie than we talked about yeah. last time <laughs> yeah you know the same thing just happened with another guest uh the last time they had been on was spiral of all things the saw spinoff wow. and now they're on for the killers so getting people back on for good ones you know so it's Excellent. always a good thing yeah absolutely uh let's you know let's before we start jumping into puzzle pieces here there's plenty of pieces to get into i i do want to ask you you know as far as alexander payne is concerned are you a big fan of his work i mean i i, I feel like i've been up and down over the years, but for the most part, really enjoy a lot of his stuff. I really am a fan of his work. Uh, I think I like, I haven't seen Citizen Ruth in a long time, but I've seen mm. everything else like within the last few years, I've, I've revisited them. And I, I love pretty much all his movies. Uh, some of them I love more than other people. Like I think The Descendants is super underrated, for example. Mm. And I really love Nebraska. Of okay. course, you know, Election is a classic. Sideways is a classic. I even revisited Downsizing recently because I thought it was like criminally uh, underestimated. Not so much. It's <laughs> It's got a lot of problems. As it turns out, people were right the first time on that one. But I mm. do admire the attempt. It was a big swing, as we like to say. And I, I'm glad he took a chance. And now he's back to something a little more uh, in his wheelhouse. I do have a few friends who uh, defend downsizing, and maybe one day I'll give it another shot, but we'll see. But uh, yeah, but also back with uh, Paul Giamatti here for the holdovers, which I think 
going into this, um, I feel like there's two stories going into it that we should comment on. First of all, is the reuniting with Paul Giamatti. We all just, you know, love Sideways. I mean, who doesn't love Sideways? But um, it's also the 70s thing, like, you know, which I, I don't know how you feel about this. I feel like that's been overplayed a little bit like i certainly it's there and especially with like the opening credits and the way the movie kicks off but um i i don't think it's i don't think he's laying it on so thick as some people are making it out to be well first of all david you just stepped on like three of my five puzzle pieces <laughs> yeah yeah recapturing the 70s that's at least two of mine so yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but but i actually agree with you um he, you know, I, I saw in interviews, like the movies that he screened for his cast and crew before they uh, shot. And it was, you know, The Last Detail and The Landlord and Harold and Maude and being there. And I think All the President's Men was the last mm -hmm. one. And I know he really thinks of this as a 70s movie, but I think of him as a quintessential 90s filmmaker. Right. Which is like a guy who grew up on 70s movies and is paying homage to those movies. But they don't have the real like dark existential undercurrent that I think a lot of those seventies movies had because, you know, for, for white guys like Alexander Payne, the nineties was, that was a pretty good time to be, to be alive and be in America. And I think, you know, he's a video store kid and sure. just, just like PTA and Quentin Tarantino and all those guys. And I think making a sort of um, jukebox version of a 70s movie is a quintessentially 90s thing to do. And that's sort of what he's done here. Yeah, absolutely. This is also one of those movies you could just kind of recommend to anybody. And I feel like that's a 90s thing. 90s movies were always so open and welcoming of just anybody from any kind of walk of life. And uh, that, that's what I feel like this is. But before I step on any more puzzle pieces, let's get to <laughs> it. What do you have for your first one? Well, I'm going to take the obvious route with my 1A choice and say Sideways. And mm -hmm. the reason I chose that out of all the other Alexander Payne movies is because of the Germati connection. Um, sure. The way I put it in my review, and I'll recycle it here, is that his character in, in this film, The Holdovers, is a lot like Miles from Sideways if he had not grown up at the end of Sideways, if he had mm -hmm. not gone and knocked on Virginia Madsen's door if he had just sat there and curdled for another 25 years and maybe moved on to harder alcohol, yeah, uh, sure. that he would end up a lot like Mr. Hunnam in, in this movie. So I think I, I like the idea of like spiritual sequels. I think that's always sort of an interesting thing to think about. And I think you could make a case because of that character alone, that this is sort of a spiritual sequel uh, to Sideways, or at the very least, they are building on the rapport, the clearly really great instinctive rapport that the director and actor have together. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think that having that kind of rapport is so important when you're making a movie that could, it could fall on the cringe side of things, you know, with a character like this, with, with a, with a setting like this, I think it could go so wrong. Um, but God, Paul Giamatti just like nails it as does all the rest of the cast. They're all just in a hundred percent with like this setting and this like kind of vibe that Alexander Payne is going for with this movie. So uh, yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I think my, my first puzzle piece, which is an obvious one that I think a lot of people have made this comparison before, but I think it needs to be a part of the conversation maybe is on the other side of that, even though I thought it was enjoyable enough. And that's a man called Otto. 
with Tom Hanks, which I, I've never seen the original, the Swedish version, uh, a man called Ove. I don't know how you pronounce it, but, uh, you know, the curmudgeon with the heart of gold. Uh, you know, Tom Hanks does a great job in that role. You also have like kind of the found family thing going on. You know, for anyone who's not irony poisons like most of us are, you know, it's a very enjoyable movie. And I think that it, it kind of gets in that same feeling of like, here's just a bunch of people. They're all, they're all a little bit lost. They, they're all, they have their issues, but nothing they can't overcome with some good old fashioned friendship and having a good time together. And that's like the main thing at the center of this. All these characters are stuck at this, this school and their company is what really like kind of gets them through these moments in their lives. And uh, that's something a man called Otto, you know, has a lot of fun with. And this does too. They're in very similar ways, I think. Yeah. And I don't, a man called Otto is not technically a Christmas movie, is it? Man, no. I, but I, mean, it did, well, I think it came out on Christmas, if memory yeah. serves. So it was sort of like intended to be seen in the Christmas spirit. Sure. And, you know, this movie is set at Christmas. It came out at Thanksgiving, but I think a lot of people will probably watch it at home, you know, in December at some point. So I think they, they share that quality that you referred to in your opening. Like, these are movies for pretty much everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Which, you know, I, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but like this movie, The Holdovers, is doing well in theaters. And it's going to be, you know, at the time of this recording, it's going to be on streaming like any minute now. I know, it's uh, so stupid. I don't get it. I, the, this business, I don't know what's going on. But let's go to another puzzle piece. What do you got next? Okay, well, I was thinking of prep school movies. And there were a lot of prep school movies in the 90s, actually, to choose from. The one that I went with was Scent of a Woman. And mm. the reason I chose that one is that we've got another sort of old guy, old cranky guy, young guy dichotomy, mentor, reluctant protege uh dynamic it has a trip to the city as a centerpiece of the movie in the same mm -hmm. way a kind of illicit trip to the city uh, and but i also think that of all the prep school movies of the 90s this one felt like uh it, it viewed the prep school kids the same way like they it saw them as the same sort of annoying schmucks that uh yeah. that, that this movie saw them they're often annoying schmucks in prep school movies but i just felt like scent of a woman and the holdovers had the exact same kind of annoying schmuck, these entitled uh, rich kids who, you know, maybe a little bit funny, like you can't help but admire, like there's a little, you know, charisma there. Uh, but yeah. ultimately they just seem like these little entitled buggers and, and you kind of can't wait to get them out of the movie. And in yes. both movies, they get them out pretty early. Right, right. That's an interesting thing about this. And it actually factors into a couple of my puzzle pieces here. The fact that uh, you know, we start out with a whole grouping, but then it's really just one-on-one -on -one for the most part from that point forward. Um, you know, I'll, I'll go with mine of that. Just jump on top. Goodwill Hunting. Uh, you know, Robin Williams and Matt Damon as these. Uh, you know, the the older guy, young guy uh, relationship. The older guy, he's hard on him, but he sees something in him. He he sees it. He's smart. He sees he has a bright future if he could just get out of his own way, and uh, he wants to try to get him there and. Uh, you know, Mr. Hunnam is, you know, he's maybe mean, he's maybe abrasive, but um, he he believes in this kid and really wants to see him, you know, do something with his life. And uh, he probably sees a lot of himself in him. And, you know, that that trip to the city really kind of underlines it and really, uh, you know, like you're talking about with Scent of a Woman, 
you know, brings that out more in a way that we could see that uh, he he really sees that in himself, the way that, that he was when he was younger. And he doesn't really want to, you know, give any of those details to this kid, but they're all there for sure. And, uh, you know, again, Goodwill Hunting, another movie where it's kind of like, this is a movie, if, if you recommend Goodwill Hunting to someone, they're going to like Goodwill Hunting. Come on, you know. <laughs> yeah, and Robin Williams, of course, played a prep school teacher mentor in another film so that's like a lane that he you know he fits yeah. like a glove i think absolutely absolutely well what do you got next okay for number three i am going with the shining <laughs> because they are in this enormous empty you know it's like a giant house essentially uh in winter snowed in not literally they can get out but it certainly feels like there's nowhere to go for much of the movie and while there is no horror in this movie, uh, existential or or other kinds of horror, I do think those there are some scenes of uh, the main character, the kid, kind of wandering the empty school, and it is a little bit terrifying. Like I sensed a little bit of like I mean I've been in some big houses. I have some rich friends, and I've been in some big houses <laughs> when there's like no one in them, and it is creepy. Even if you don't think you know you're you're about to be murdered by you know evil twins or or whatever sure. um, or naked woman in a bathtub it's still creepy and i kind of think they got a little sense of that and i think that the point of it really was to just kind of demonstrate the loneliness this kid was feeling and and yeah. hint hint at the darkness that he was dealing with being in this place that he hated uh all by himself essentially for two weeks uh but it, it there were moments of that sequence that did remind me of the shining yeah, wasn't uh was was Scatman the cook also like the only other person right. on premises? So there you go, you got to cook there. Abs so. Absolutely, that's a great point. Actually, yeah. someone's got to cook the food uh, while while they're stuck in that location. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great one. The Shining comes up so much lately on this podcast. I think there's something in the air. Uh, I mean, maybe you know Kubrick's always in the air when it comes to inspiring films, but The Shining especially has been just coming up so often and it, it's there's so many different angles you can get at it with whether it's the isolation or you know the going crazy like whatever aspect you see in a specific movie it's always there yeah i was talking about it recently with someone we were trying to come up with a list of great movies about writing and like that was of mm, course yeah. on the list i think i heard someone bring it up on your episode about um the royal hotel actually okay yeah, yeah. uh because yeah. you're talking about like a single location kind of building dread uh, and I, I guess sure. like us being in this era of elevated horror, The Shining will come up a lot too, because yeah. it's like a, you know, precursor to all that stuff. Absolutely. Well, you know what? The Shining, a uh, bit of a curveball there. I'm going to go with my curveball. Uh, I'm going to go with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, mm. You know, just to go into this, uh, this setting where, where there's this one, uh, you know, real authority figure and they're, they're, until the end of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, they're not, they're not exactly a bad person. They're just, they're in charge. They're authority, you know? And, uh, you know, all the people that are under their authority just do not respect them whatsoever. And, of course, here, you know, this guy, he really is a good guy down, you know, deep down. And so things go in a much different direction as uh, as things go on in the film. But uh you, you just have that that authority and subordinate kind of relationship between the two and mm -hmm. 
you could see how things in a uh, much harder military school type of situation might have ended up more like a one one floor of the cuckoo's nest kind of uh, setup. Um, so it, it's certainly uh, out of left field, but uh, you, you could kind of see the connection there. I like that a lot. And also, I mean, I revisited One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest last year. And one of my big revelations was, as you point out, that Nurse Ratchet is not like a monster. Right. You know? Right. She's kind of sympathetic up until the end. She's trying to keep order and you understand like it's not easy to do. You got to sometimes lay down the law and make arbitrary you know, discipline. Um, but also because it's a movie set in one place, mostly sure. and these characters are literally trapped there, just as this yeah. kid is literally trapped in the school. So I think that's a great call. Right on. Also, uh, what more 70s movie is there than One yeah. Floor of the Cocos Nest? So you got that too. Exactly. And that movie was so, you know, countercultural and subversive. And this movie really is not that countercultural right. or subversive. And again, <laughs> yeah. that's that's the thing about it being more of a 70s uh, uh, copy than a uh, carbon copy than an authentic sure. uh, article. Absolutely. What do you got next? Well, speaking of the 70s, Sort of. Uh, my next puzzle piece is actually super bad. And oh. I chose super bad because I think it started this trend of using 70s era studio logos at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> That's the first one I remember anyway. Yeah. And I know that after that, uh, the Wolfman did it in 2010. Argo did it in 2012. Django Unchained did it in 2013. So I think super bad kickstarted that trend, which I think we all thought it was super cool. Uh, I know yeah. that I did. And I love that in this film, Alexander Payne takes it uh, a step further. He evolves it and actually creates a studio logo for a studio, a 70s studio logo for a studio that did not exist in the right. 1970s. And uh, I know at my critic screening, at least, everybody got a good chuckle out of that uh, studio yeah. logo at the beginning of the film. So it's a cute joke. It's fun. And it also does tell you a little bit what he's after and, and sets the stage for, for the rest of the film. Yeah. You got a really good imitation of the uh, trailer voice guy for the trailer for this too. That like really. <laughs> yes. well. Yeah. I miss um, that guy. Oh yeah. He's so good. He's the best. You always knew your, uh, your at attention when that guy was talking, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, super bad's a, a great example of that though, for sure. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, also in the beginning, once, you know, when, when there's all the kids, you also have just that, you know, the kids are all kind of shits to one another. So you get that too in there. And uh, speaking of which I'm going to bring up the breakfast club as a puzzle piece, as far as all these kids and you kind of get all of the, you know, they're, they're not exactly cliche stock characters, but at the same time, you get the nerdy one, you get the jockey one, you get the, the one who's like a rich kid but doesn't want to admit it, you know? Like, all these different kinds of characters that are stuck together in the school, and, you know, they they, they fuck with each other, but at the same time, they're friends, they're the only people that they've really got to hang out with. And, like we've already said, like, things really shift once everybody leaves the school, except for the main kid, Angus, but... Um, you know, in at least that first half, you've got more of a Breakfast Club style John Hughes kind of characters, like all stuck together. It is kind of interesting now that you mention it, because I'm not sure any of the scenes with all those kids really like pays off that dramatically later mm -hmm. in the film. Yeah. Uh, but it does set you up for one kind of movie like you could have a Breakfast Club style film 
with all these kids stuck there over Christmas break and watching them bounce off each other and learn a little something from each other, you really sort of sense that's coming. Uh, and then they pull the rug out from under you and all of the kids leave except for him. And yeah. you're like, okay, now I guess we're seeing a different kind of movie. Um, yeah. It does give you more of a sense of, of the main character and like who he is and where his kindness lies and where it doesn't lie. Uh, sure. But but they spend a lot of time with those kids considering they just leave for the yeah. last hour and a half of the film. Right. No, absolutely. I think if anything, like the idea that, uh, you know, th this kid isn't exactly connecting with them either, these people that are his own age, you know, so then when it comes time for him to just kind of spar off with, you know, uh, Mr. Hunnam, it's it's kind of the same thing. He's He's not really fitting with anybody because he's not, you know dealing with his own issues and whatnot. But, but yeah, it, it is interesting though, that, uh, that, you know, these kids are just all gone and we never really kind of come back to them. It's like, just becomes a different story. And it's kind of an interesting group of kids. You know, you've got the Mormon, you've got the jock who won't cut his hair. I mean, I kind of, I mean, I loved the movie, but I kind of would have liked to see a little more of those guys. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, let's see, what do we got? Uh, what do you got for your next piece? Okay, um, I'm, I'm now honing in on a very specific element of the film. But my next piece is Damien Chazelle's Babylon. Ooh. And I'll tell you why. You know, when that film came out, a lot of people noticed that the composer uh, used some of the same, the same theme in parts that he used in La La Land, right? That mm -hmm. he brought back the musical theme from La La Land for certain elements in Babylon. And that was seen as very clever and sort of making it this postmodern riff on Chazelle's own work and on Hollywood movies in general. And I haven't seen it commented on anywhere, but the composer of The Holdovers, Mark Orton, actually revisits his own theme from Nebraska in a scene huh. in The Holdovers. In Nebraska, the track is called Their Pie. I don't remember where it plays in Nebraska, but it's the first track on the album. Mm -hmm. And he slightly changes it, but it's it's clearly the same melody in a track called Drive to Boston in Holdovers that plays over them getting in the car and, and making the trip to Boston. And I'm not sure what thematic resonance that has exactly, but I yeah. thought it was worth noting because I don't think he tried to sneak it by anyone. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that he's using the same, same theme. I like it because it just makes Payne's work feel connected. And as somebody who's like, you know, invested in directors and auteur theory and all that nonsense. Uh, that makes me feel all warm and cuddly inside. Sure. Uh, but but I hadn't seen anyone mention it before. And, and as somebody who listens to the Nebraska soundtrack a lot, like I write to it, I, I really like it. Um, it struck me immediately. Oh, that that's really interesting. I, I did not realize that. I've only seen Nebraska once and I loved it at the time, but I, it, you know, since it first came out, um, I'm going to have to revisit it one of these days and also listen to that soundtrack because I love the music here. So... Yeah. Well, you're a music guy. I thought that would appeal to you. There you go. Good one. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I will go with, let, let, you know what? Let's go to Licorice Pizza uh, 2021. Paul Thomas Anderson, we mentioned him earlier, but uh, <laughs> let's go to this just kind of free form memory kind of a film where it's like, you know, the plot, there, there's plot here, you know, but it's not as important as getting to get a feel for these people and this moment in their lives and what it might shape for these people later on in their lives. Like we're, we're obviously not going to get the holdovers too, but you could imagine where they end up and how this moment, this one particular winter 
you know, was just such a big formative moment for them. And uh, if you connect with the characters the way that we, uh, you know, connect with Paul Giamatti, with Dominic Sessa, and with Divine Joy Randolph, um, you can absolutely, uh, you know, jibe with that and just, like, want to know what's going to go on with them later on in life. And that's something that Licorice Pizza, I mean... Uh, you know how much I love that movie. I, to me, that is a movie I can just sit with and just write sequels in, in my head. You know, like I, I have their stories continuing and there's different ways that that could play out. And it's almost as interesting as the movie itself that you're watching. I like that. It also, Alana Heim's character feels like mean in the same way that Dominic Sessa's character is mean in this movie. Like, <laughs> yeah, sure. it's not it's not really cute mean. Like, these, these guys are actually mean. And yeah. Uh, Teenagers are pretty mean, so I, I appreciate that. Absolutely. They definitely can be. Well, mostly are, but uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. What do you got for your next one? Well, I've got a few here. I don't know how much there is to say about any of them, but these are films that came to mind. Uh, for... Okay, here's a controversial one. I hope this uh, is, doesn't get me canceled, but I'm going to say, um, I'm going to say Gone with the Wind. Oh, Okay. And I'm talking specifically about Hattie McDaniel's performance in that movie, which is problematic in a lot of ways, but also was like a richer, more prominent black character than people, mainstream audiences had seen at that time. Mm. And I think there's some sort of corollary to Divine Joy Randolph's character in this movie, which is both like, uh, I think they, they take great respect to make her, uh, give her agency and make her interesting but also shows sort of the limits of trying to insert some sort of racial politics into a film that is primarily about white people. Sure. I mean, sure. again, she's playing, she's playing uh, someone in the service industry. She's playing the cook at this all white school. Right. Mm. And there's, and, and they talk about that. And I think the film is actually really smart about showing people of color in all of these service roles. You've got her, you've got uh, the janitor, you even at the mental hospital where you meet, uh, you know, his uh, father, the person taking care of his father is black as well. And I think the right. film is super aware of this. I think the film is showing us this bifurcated racial world. But I have heard some people say, like, it's a little weird um, to do that and then, like, have her arc be sort of so truncated and, like, not deeply explored. The same thing was said. Uh, Justin Chang wrote a review of this movie where he called out the portrayal of the uh, Asian child who uh -huh. is a student and they he gets like a minute and then he's just shuffled off out of the movie. And I really respect Alexander Payne trying to like deal with this in some way. But I yeah. think it, he runs into a little bit of the same problems that he ran into in Downsizing, which right, is right. he's showing us a, a character of color. He's respecting them. He's giving them some agency. But ultimately, these are stories about white people. And Gone with the Wind is like a uh, you know, magnified version of that, where it's not just a story about white people, it's a story that's celebrating like white culture and, and racist culture in a lot of ways. But it did make me think of it, that there's this history of showing black characters in, in roles where they're serving white people and trying to respect that as much as you can, but still yeah. bumping into some limitations. And I think the holdovers limitations are not the same as Gone with the Winds, but it, it's on a spectrum at, at maybe different sure. 
Yeah, there's always going to be some people who are going to have an issue with the way that it's portrayed. And, uh, you know, I, I think that he does a great job here. Um, I haven't seen Gone with the Wind since I was a kid. I'm actually going to be watching it in a couple of months for a podcast. Uh, but wow. it'll be wow. interesting to see how that holds up. But um, Now, that'll be one of those three-hour podcasts, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah <definitely>. <laughs> <laughs> that you were telling me about earlier. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely, for sure. Oh, man. Uh, last puzzle piece from me. Uh, I'm going to combine Dazed and Confused and everybody wants some. Let's get some link later in there. Um, this goes back to some of the other themes we're talking about here with like the films of the 90s. I mean, who's more 90s than Richard Linklater? But, um, you know, again, just like th this goes back to Licorice Pizza. I'm, I'm sure we used Dazed and Confused when I did that movie. But, um, you know, just like this, this one moment in time for all these people, you get to know all these different characters, you get to know their lives. You're, you're not going to see more of them, but you get the sense of, how things play out for a lot of these people involved. And uh, for those, especially for those three central characters, like you really just get such a picture of these people, even with a short amount of time, even Divine Joy Randolph, you get such a great idea of who this person is and who they, what they've been through and uh, where they're headed, you know, and uh, Paul Giamatti's character, Dominic Sessa's character, they're, they're all so richly drawn you know, you think back to those Linklater movies and you really get a feeling for all of these characters, even though it's this big tapestry of even more characters than this, um, you you really get a sense of so many people. Yeah, and and the characters we do see really seem like Linklater characters. I mean, the, yeah. the jock who won't cut his hair, I mean, that's Randall Pink Floyd from Dazed and Confused. I mean, sure. it almost seems like that's an homage in a small way. So I think that's a terrific call and I'm huge fans of both of those movies. Awesome. Well, do you have any others you want to bring up before we wrap up the list? I do. I'm going to mention three others. The first is a film I've never seen, but it's it apparently was the actual inspiration for this movie. And it's a 1935 French film called Merleus. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I don't, I don't speak French, but it's about a teacher who gets stuck uh, over the Christmas holidays with a bunch of students and how huh. they all grow to like each other. I haven't been able to find it anywhere, but I think Alexander Payne saw it like at a theater in France uh, somewhere yeah. that inspired him to make this movie. That sounds um, interesting. I'd love to see that. Yeah, I was looking for it. I, it sounds cool. Uh, also going to mention the ice storm mm -hmm. because when we meet uh, when we meet his his mom and stepdad at the end, those characters really seem like they would have fit right into the ice storm. Like they would be at that key party in New Canaan, sure. Connecticut for sure. I revisited yeah. that movie again recently and more boy it is it is a rough watch it is bleak as hell but oh yeah those those parents were they were ice storms unto themselves <laughs> and uh this one i just have to mention because it sprung to mind but how about home alone this is sort of like the opposite of home alone sure. he's like he's not they didn't forget him at home they left him at school but it's christmas he's sort of by himself in this enormous place you know that that uh he's not used to being alone in and I don't know, it has a little bit of the same spirit of Home Alone if you squint really, really hard. Yeah, I could see that. Also, uh, when the kid jumps on the trampoline and breaks his arm, like that's, you know, that's some... <laughs> that's something stuff. Kevin McAllister would have done, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? We'll throw Home Alone on the list. I like that. Um, I, I'll also throw on there Rushmore. I mean, that kind of gets into the same themes as a lot of uh, other things we were talking about there, but especially with all the... The back and forth verbal stuff going on, you can totally picture Jason Schwartzman and Bill Murray, the way that they go at each other in that movie. So 
throw that on there as a last minute extra piece. I like too that in, in Rushmore and in this movie, it's a prep school that goes K through 12. Like you don't see that in prep school movies a lot. Usually it's just like high school, but yeah. you see the actual children in both of those movies as well, which is something that binds them, I think. That's interesting. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I will read down the list of puzzle pieces here, and then we'll get into some closing thoughts. We talked about Sideways, A Man Called Otto, Scent of a Woman, Goodwill Hunting, The Shining, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Superbad, The Breakfast Club, Babylon, Licorice Pizza, Gone with the Wind, Days and Confuse, Everybody Wants Some, Merluz, I'm taking your uh, pronunciation of that one, <laughs> uh, The Ice Storm, Home Alone, and Rushmore. Uh, you know, obviously lots of these like kind of student teacher, you know, school kind of things, authority figures, curmudgeons, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff around the, around the way. A any, uh, any closing thoughts, anything that we didn't quite get into while doing puzzle pieces that you wanted to bring up? Not really. I mean, we didn't talk a lot about divine joy Randolph, but I really did think she was great. I wrote a piece for Uproxx about her career and her performance in this movie. If people want to Google look for that, um, I would recommend it, but I think yeah, it's a good, I, I think it's, thank you. I think it's a great movie. And I think, I think it's going to be a big player at, at the Oscars next year. I mean, this is the sort of like almost edgy, warm hearted movie that I think Academy voters really go for. And if anything is going to derail the Oppenheimer train, if they're looking for something different, you know, sometimes at the last minute, voters look for something different. It wouldn't shock me if something like this happened, especially since Alexander Payne is like long overdue for some some uh, serious uh, Academy love. Yeah, I, I could see that for sure. I was actually thinking about the Oscars with this, like this is that movie where I'm like, you, you know, when there's a movie like last year, it was the Banshees of Inishirin for me, like a movie where it's like, whatever award it wins, I will not be one bit mad. Give it any awards you want to give it. I would be perfectly happy, you know? Uh, yeah, I hear this you. is that movie. So, yeah, I, I completely agree about Divine Joy Randolph. So, so good. Um, and, uh, yeah, th this whole cast is great. So I think that does it for The Holdovers. Noah, is there another movie you watched recently you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I've been doing 2023 catch-up screeners and whatnot as I try to uh... – solidify my top 10 list, which will be published at uh, Washington City Paper. And I finally caught up to this movie, A Fire by Christian Petzold, that is now on Criterion after I think being in theaters over the summer. And I was blown away by it. I mean, I like Christian Petzold a lot. Um, I love Phoenix. I really love Transit as well. Uh, but this was really sneaky. It sort of hides what it's actually about until like halfway, three quarters through the movie. And I don't want to spoil much, uh, like even telling you what its vibe is would be would be spoiling it a little bit because that's sort of the fun is watching it unfold. But it is a movie about writing and about being a writer. And hmm. I think anybody who has done that for a profession, whether part-time, full-time, whatever, I think will connect to it because this is a really indelible portrait of a writer that we can all relate to for better and for worse. Awesome. I'm going to have to seek that out. I have not seen that and it sounds great. So thank you for the recommendation on that one. Uh, yeah, Noah, tell people where they can find you and your work. Let's see. I, I'm on Twitter X uh, at Noah Gattel, N-O-A-H-G-I-T-T-E-L-L. -L. I have a sub stack in which I write about film and baseball. Um, I try to write about baseball in a way that even non-baseball fans will enjoy. Uh, so that's called Good Eye. And you can just Google that and probably find it. 
Um, I also have a book coming out next year on baseball cinema. Uh, it is available for pre-order, although we don't even have a cover yet, so it doesn't look too attractive. But it is there if you want to look for it. It's called Baseball the Movie, and it's available at uh, Barnes & Noble and a few other places. Awesome. Well, maybe we'll get you back on once that book is uh, on the way out and uh, look forward to having you back on sometime. We just need them to make another baseball movie and we can do it. Oh, yeah. That that means I have to watch like a hundred of them. So I'm ready for it. But uh... <laughs> Welcome to my world. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm Josh Bell. And I'm Jason Harrison. We co-host a podcast called Awesome Movie Year. Each season, we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. We deep dive into these specific years and we pick out why they were such great years for films. We go over the biggest hits, the biggest flops, the best pictures, some personal picks, some cult classics. Years we've covered in past seasons include 1994, 2003, 1977, and 1984. And we've got all of film history to look forward to. So check us out at awesomemovieyear.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation about the holdovers. Thanks to Noah for joining me on that one, and thank you to you for listening. If you're enjoying piecing it together, of course, make sure you are subscribed wherever it is that you're listening right now. And it would mean a lot if you'd drop a little five-star rating and review over on Apple Podcasts, Good Pod, Spotify, wherever it is that you're listening. Those reviews... They seem silly, but they help get the show heard and seen by more people. So uh, drop a little review. It would be very helpful. You could also follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where we continue the conversation about all the movies we talk about here on the show. And don't forget, we do have a Patreon, the Produced by David Rosen Patreon, where I post bonus and advanced content from Piecing It Together, from Awesome Movie Year, which is another movie podcast that I produce, and from my music career, I've got a lot of stuff on there right now. I'm going to be releasing another exclusive soundtrack album very soon. Once I finish up all my 2024 music plans, I will be getting back to that to get that up there. Uh, lots of great stuff. It's patreon.com slash by David Rosen, the produced by David Rosen Patreon. I appreciate you just being out there listening. But if you want to support the show in that way, also very much appreciated and lots of great stuff to get. So check that out. So let's close this out with a piece of music like I always do. And I don't know. This is a this is kind of a tough one to decide what to play. I don't I don't really have anything that fits the the vibe here exactly, but uh, I'm just going to, because I love this movie so much, I'm going to use this as a excuse to play something that's coming out in 2024. This is one of my new tracks that will be out in 2024. It's called Coming Down Hard. It's uh, more of a uh, ambient, slow one, uh, but it's uh, one that I, I really love. And I don't know, maybe I'll make some kind of a music video or visualization kind of thing to go along with it once the song comes out and around the middle of next year but uh yeah again it's called coming down hard it will be out in 2024 hope you enjoy it and we'll be back with more piecing it together real soon
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.